cherubim. One of the fixed classes of the powers of heaven. In the Bible, a cherub is described as a winged heavenly being or angel that is placed by God to guard the way of the tree of life. So I drove out the man and I placed at the east of the garden of Eden cherubim and a flaming sword which turned every way to keep the way of the tree of life. Genesis 2, paragraph 19. The image of a flaming sword and the cherubim go together. Karev or cherub means sword. The Hebrew word. Kuv. And plural. Kuvim. Is said to be borrowed from the Assyrian Karubu to be near or to bless or to be great or mighty, hence the possibility to describe these as mighty, near ones, who surround and bless God. In the Holy of Holies of Solomon's Temple, symbolic cherubim, comprising huge creatures, were placed over the Ark of the Covenant and spread their wings, which formed the golden throne where the Lord was enthroned. You that dwell between the cherubim, shine forth. Psalms 80, paragraph 1. Children of God For the redeemed are the children of God, and he dwells in them. See 1 John 1. Paragraph 18. Christ taught and lived this, and blessed are all the peacemakers, for they shall be called the children of God. Matthew 3. Paragraph 12. Children of the Prophets. When one has accepted, believed, and followed the Lord's true messengers, they become the children of Abraham and receive priestly authority, sealing them into the family of God, joining the fathers. From the time of Abraham until today, all who are redeemed have become a part of Abraham's household. See also the glossary entry, Seed of Abraham. Chosen, Chosen People When God begins to work with a people, the group becomes chosen and therefore the focus of his continuing efforts to save mankind. Although chosen people do not always remain faithful to him, they do remain the center of his work. When a people are chosen by the Lord, he generally endows them with specific gifts or blessings. Whether they are ancient or modern, in the old world or new, they are almost always given a specific set of gifts as part of a covenant. These covenant-based gifts generally include the following, in no particular order, a promised land, self-government, sacred space with sacred artifacts, angelic visitors, signs of his presence, sacred records which expand through a growing body of revelation and ordinances. What about the question of chosenness of the God's special people? Israel was, after all, at one point chosen by the gods as their special people. But that does not mean what most people think it means. Being chosen means someone or some people are put on display as either the faithful servant, elevating others, or the unwise steward, who is condemned, beaten with a rod, and made the display of divine ire. Chosenness does not mean what we oftentimes think chosenness means. We tend to view that as something laudable, and it means that we're better than someone else because God's focused attention on us, and therefore, since we get his attention, there is something great about us. 
If you go through and read the scriptures about the concept of chosenness, almost always you run into words about forging in a fire the product that God regards as his people, which means that God has a fairly realistic assessment of what people are like, and choosing them doesn't mean he's found a finished product. Choosing them means he's found something with which he's determined to work. High carbon steel requires iron, and it requires a matrix of that carbon to be within the element. Life, all life, is based on carbon. We breathe oxygen. We are carbon-based, all of us. In a very real sense, every breath we take, we take and burn it in our furnace. The way that we convey that oxygen throughout the body is by oxidizing iron in our blood. That's why our blood cells turn red when exposed to oxygen, because the iron element fused with the oxygen oxidizes, or rusts, and so it looks red. And then, when it drops the oxygen off where it's going to be consumed in the limbs, it loses that element, and it returns, and it's blue. Forging us in the fire of affliction, breathing into us the breath of life, talking about being chosen, the example of what it takes in order to fashion something that will withstand and hold an edge, all of these things are types and shadows of what it means to be chosen. Chosenness puts you on display in order for the Lord to either prove what foolishness is in the person chosen, or if they succeed, to put them through an ordeal that demonstrates faithfulness and commitment, desire and earnestness, so that everyone stands back and says, this people represented God either by the shabby performance and the persecution and the failure and the folly, or it represents God by the diligence and the effort and the faithfulness. Within every group of chosen people, there are always those who are resilient and faithful enough to pass the test, to hold the edge, to survive when the difficulties come. And when the Lord puts us through the furnace of affliction, our burdens are designed to get us to be able to qualify. Our burdens are designed to make us a little more realistic about our own limitations. When the Lord came to Bountiful, why were the 2,500 witnesses of Christ chosen? See 3 Nephi 5. The answer is they were where they should be. And bountiful, near a surviving temple, doing what they should be doing, preparing to celebrate the year-end festivals. They chose themselves by doing what they should be doing, where they should be doing it. It is not the Lord who makes arbitrary choices. It is His children who elect to be and do what they are asked and thereby qualify themselves. All are alike to God, but some abide the conditions, and the rest do not. Anyone could abide the conditions. Only a few decide to do so. Those who do are self-selecting themselves to receive the things being offered to all. See also the glossary entry, Covenant. Chosen Vessel Anyone and everyone to whom Christ ministers as the second comforter, as well as anyone who has received a visit from an angelic messenger. Angels minister to chosen vessels or mortal messengers, as the three Nephites did with Mormon and Moroni. These vessels then testify and bear testimony so that the way is prepared that the residue of men may have faith in Christ. Moroni 7, paragraph 6. Christian. And if ye do always remember me, ye shall have my spirit to be with you. 
3 Nephi 8, paragraph 6. The prayer pronounced upon the sacrament reflects these same aspirations. However, this is not a petition in prayer, but a promise from the Lord. He affirms that for those who have repented of their sins and are baptized in his name, he promises a result. When, having done as he has asked, a person remembers his blood through this ordinance, bearing in mind that it was shed for you, then one can properly witness unto the Father. The witness one makes to the Father by this remembrance is that ye do always remember Christ. This memorial before the Father, when done correctly, results in the promise of Christ that ye shall always have his Spirit to be with you. This is a covenant. This is the Lord promising. His word cannot fail. He is establishing the means by which one can have, as his guide and companion, his spirit, his light, his presence in one's life. This is more intimate than touching his side, hands, and feet. This is to have his spirit within one's touch at all times. The believer becomes an extension of him, properly taking his name upon him. For he is then indeed a Christian. He will christen or anoint him, not with the symbol of oil, but with the reality of his spirit. This anointing is the real thing, of which the oil was meant only to testify. The Greek word, means to anoint and is from where the title Christ and the appellation Christian originates from Christos, meaning the anointed one. The Holy Ghost was intended to become a companion at the time of baptism. The Spirit of Christ is intended to become a companion in the believer's very person as well. When there are two members of the Godhead represented in a living person, then it is the Father who receives this testimony of him, about him, by him, and for him. He becomes his, for these three are one. There is more going on here than an ordinance and a testimony. This is the means by which a link is formed that can and will result in the Father taking that which is corruptible and changing it into that which is incorruptible. Though, like Christ, a man or woman may be required to lay down their life, they shall have power given them to take it up again. For that which has been touched by the incorruptible power of his spirit cannot be left without hope in the grave. All such people die firm in the knowledge they are promised a glorious resurrection. This, then, is eternal life. Church The Lord defines His church as, Whosoever is baptized unto repentance. Mosiah 11, paragraph 21 More clearly, in this day He has said, Behold, this is my doctrine, whosoever repents and comes unto me, the same is my church. Joseph Smith History Part 10, Paragraph 19 The Lord's church means those who repent and are baptized in his name. The word church comes from the Greek word, Glis, Alpha, meaning an assembly or calling out or forth used throughout the Old and New Covenants. It is a group of people gathered together, not necessarily as a formal institution or organization. The modern word is derived from the Old English Cirrus, Circuit, place of assemblage set aside for Christian worship. The body of Christian believers, Christians collectively. Ecclesiastical authority or power.
from the Proto-Germanic Kirika, or Dutch Kirk and German Kirche, which is probably borrowed via an unrecorded Gothic word from Greek Kyriak and Kyriakon Doma, the Lord's house. From Kyrios, ruler or lord. The Greek Kyriakon, of the Lord, was used of houses of Christian worship since about 300, especially in the East, though it was less common in this sense than Ecclesia or Basilica. The original development under Joseph Smith was something quite distinct from all existing faiths. It was not just a new religion. It was a wholesale resurrection of an ancient concept of peoplehood. It was radical. Its purpose was to change diverse assortments of people from every culture and faith with every kind of ethnic and racial composition into a new kind of people. They were to be united under the banner of a new and everlasting covenant, resurrecting the ancient Hebraic notion of nationhood and peoplehood. No matter what their former culture was, they were adopted inside a new family, a covenant family. Status was defined not by virtue of what one believed or confessed, but instead by what covenants they had assumed. What returned through Joseph Smith was not a religion, nor an institution, nor merely a faith. It was instead the radical notion that an ancient covenant family was being regathered into a separate people. This return to ancient roots brought with it, as the hallmark of its source of power, the idea of renewed covenants that brought each individual into a direct contract with God. It did not matter what they believed. It only mattered that they accepted and took upon them the covenant. Reconciliation between what Joseph Smith restored and other religions should never have been a goal. Joseph's restoration was not a church. It was not a religion. It was not a bundle of beliefs. The original restoration could never be like any other mainstream Christian faith. They were churches. Joseph restored peoplehood. To go from what Joseph restored to a common footing with other contemporary Christian faiths requires us to first abandon the concept that we are neither a new form of Christianity nor a return to Jewish antecedents. We are something quite different from either. We are a Hebraic resurrection of God's people, clothed with a covenant, and engaged in a direct relationship with God that makes us distinct from all other people. See also the glossary entries, Synagogue, Great and Abominable Church. Church of the Firstborn Those who have been adopted into the family of God and are part of the hosts of heaven. This requires a sealing ordinance and covenant. Church of the Lamb Those who are Christ's and for whom his blood covers their sins and transgressions. They are like those who were spared by the destroying angel during the Passover because of the Lamb's blood on the doorposts and lentil. They are spared from condemnation. See also, Lamb of God under the glossary entry, Names of God in Scripture. Coat of Many Colors The idea of a garment of many colors is an invention. It's not a garment of many colors at all. A garment of certain marks is the term that should be used. This garment had belonged to Abraham, and it already had a long history. 
Its history was lengthy because it went back to the Garden of Eden. That's the garment. It's the only one. Just as we treat the story of Cain and Abel, we trivialize this. We say, Joseph was the youngest kid, so his father favored him and gave him a pretty garment of many colors. There is no mention in any ancient source of a garment of many colors. That's an invention of modern editors trying to explain it. But here it was the garment he gave him. It was the garment of the priesthood. No wonder they were jealous of him, they being the elder brothers and he the younger in the patriarchal line coming down from Abraham. This garment had belonged to Abraham and had come down to Joseph instead of to the other brethren. They stripped him of his sacred garment, not of many colors, but of sacred markings. Having stripped him of the garment that belonged to the heir and assured him of his exaltation, they cast him into a pit without water. Comforter, the There are two comforters. The first is the Holy Ghost. Christ promised his followers he would send a comforter to them. He said, If you love me, keep my commandments. And I will ask the Father, and he shall give you another comforter, that he may be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it sees him not, neither knows him. But you know him, for he dwells with you, and shall be in you, John 9, paragraph 8. The promise about the Comforter is preceded and followed by two important conditions. It is preceded with the statement, If you love me, keep my commandments. There is a direct and unavoidable connection between the Comforter and the scriptural requirements to both love the Lord and keep his commandments. One cannot love him and reject his commandments. More importantly, he cannot send this Comforter if one disregards, disobeys, or neglects his commandments. It is through obedience to the commandments that the Comforter or Holy Ghost is obtained. If one is not prepared to obey his commandments, it is not possible to receive these two Comforters. See also the glossary entry, Comforter, the Second. Comforter, the Second. The Return to Christ's Presence. The term comes from Christ's reference to another comforter in John 9, paragraph 8. The concept involves Christ appearing to his disciples as well as his ministry. The Holy Ghost has a ministry to bring a believer to receive angels and then to Christ. Christ, in turn, has a ministry to take the faithful servant and bring him to the Father. Now what is this other comforter? It is no more nor less than the Lord Jesus Christ himself. When any man obtains this last comforter, he will have the personage of Jesus Christ to attend him or appear unto him from time to time. Teachings of the Prophet Joseph Smith, pages 150 to 151, or words of Joseph Smith, page 5. Regarding John 14, paragraph 23, the appearing of the Father and the Son in that verse is a personal appearance. And the idea that the Father and the Son dwell in a man's heart is an old sectarian notion and is false. The ministry of the second comforter is to bring those to whom he ministers to the Father and have them accepted by him. 
This means that the Father accepts them as a member of the heavenly family, or in other words, promises them exaltation. The end of the Lord's ministry is to have the person accepted by the Father as a son or daughter of God. Receiving the second comforter means you will meet Christ. You will know, without a doubt, He exists. You will know, through Him, the atonement has been provided and the scriptures that testify of Him are true. You will no longer have faith in the existence of God nor in your standing before Him, but will have knowledge. Receiving an audience with the second comforter is the fullness of the gospel of Jesus Christ. The question was asked as to whether receiving the second comforter is necessary before you die, or if the afterlife supplies an adequate substitute. This requires the evaluation of two separate concepts. First, the second comforter means a visit or personal appearance to someone by Christ. However, the appearance is not as important as the ministry of the Lord. He comforts those to whom he appears. He will not leave you comfortless. He will come to you. John 9, paragraph 8. Christ and his Father will make their abode with you, meaning that the Son will bring you to the Father, and the Father will receive you as his Son. John 9, paragraph 8. This appearance is not merely in the heart, but is an actual appearance or visit. However, the purpose of the ministry, the reason for the abode, the comfort that is promised by the Lord, involves the promise of eternal life. The promise of eternal life has been made in equivalency by the Lord in a revelation given in modern times. That is, the end or result of the ministry of Christ as the second comforter is to have the promise of eternal life. In a modern revelation, the word of the Lord was given to a group of Latter-day Saints in which the promise of their exaltation was extended to them, and the Lord made this the equivalent to another comforter. Here is what was said, Wherefore, I now send upon you another comforter, even upon you, my friends, that it may abide in your hearts, even the Holy Spirit of promise, which other comforter is the same that I promised unto my disciples, as is recorded in the testimony of John. This comforter is the promise which I give unto you of eternal life, even the glory of the celestial kingdom, which glory is that of the church of the firstborn, even of God, the holiest of all, through Jesus Christ his Son, TNC 86, paragraph 1. Therefore, as a singular appearance, should the Lord appear to you, you have received the second comforter. However, his ministry is to bring you to the point at which you can receive the promise of eternal life, membership in the church of the firstborn, and the promise of the celestial kingdom as your eternal inheritance. In the fullest sense, therefore, the final promise of exaltation in the celestial kingdom can also be called the second comforter, since that is the result of his taking up his abode with you. The second concept is really a question. Would it be preferable to have the promise of eternal life now than to die uncertain as to your eternal state? If so, then why would you waste your life now in hopes that some other opportunity may exist at some other stage? If the answer to these questions are yes, then the original question is simply unimportant. Why wait? The opportunity given to you now should not be forfeited, nor should the work be delayed. Don't dismiss the Lord's offered assistance for what you can achieve in mortality for the possibility of something in the afterlife. 
The reason Christ calls himself the Comforter is because when he comes, the recipient will need comfort. He or she will pass through distresses, sorrows, and difficulties at first, and then he will provide comfort. See also the glossary entry, Comforter, the 